0: Now, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to be in Genesis 3. I'll have the slides up for you up on the screen. But if you want to grab a Bible down below or you brought your Bible, always good to get a practice of opening up your own word. As you do that, share a story from a, well, it's not a story. It's a a scene in a movie from 30 years ago. I don't even remember the name of the movie now. Uh, But there's this scene where this guy, main character, he's driving uh, in kind of a a, a gang-heavy area, and his car breaks down. And so he calls a tow truck. He walks and he finds a payphone. Parents, you can tell what your kids what that's about later. Uh, and he finds a payphone and he calls um, for the tow truck. So he goes back and he waits next to his car. Some of the gang members in the area who are hanging out in one of the houses, they notice this dude. And they start to mess with him more and more and becoming increasingly hostile towards him. And then finally, the tow truck driver, he pulls up, he gets out of his car and they start looking at the tow truck driver and they start giving him trouble. And he says this to him, he goes, man, the world isn't supposed to be like this. You guys may not know that, but this isn't the way everything's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to come here and do my job without asking permission from you guys. And this guy is supposed to be able to wait next to his car without him being worried, you're gonna beat him up and rip him off. Because man, everything's just supposed to be so different than what it is. You ever feel like that? Things just don't seem right. I mean, we look at pictures like from the Ukraine war. And, we, and, and, and this is a nice picture compared to some of them that you could see. And, we're just, and we see these millions of people that have been displaced. Children who've been displaced. Country ripped apart. We're like, this is just not right. This should not be happening. We all ask these questions. You know, what's one question we don't often ask ourselves is why we feel this way. I mean, why do images like this bother us? Well, why does a war halfway across the world bother us? Well, why do we feel like the world should be one way or another? Like, where do these feelings come from? In all my life, in all my searching, I find only one plausible answer to this question. And that is because ingrained in our soul is the expectation for what life was meant to be. And we know that this is not it. Even if we don't know why, we know this is not it. And so today, we're gonna look at why things are the way they are. We're gonna look at at the only explanation that makes sense for why things are the way that they are. Now, last week, uh, we looked at Adam and Eve. They're living in the Garden of Eden, and they're introduced to a new character on the world stage, the serpent, who we believe was Satan, or at very least, uh, 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 a demon of Satan, right? Either way, it was Satan in the end. And, And he tempted Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I explained more about that tree and stuff last week in case you missed, you can go back and listen. And we saw Adam and Eve give in to this temptation. So they saw it look good to eat. They knew it would make them wise, so they took it. Well, Eve took it and then Adam followed suit. So what we're gonna pay attention to this week, last week we talked about temptation, this week we're gonna look at the fallout of their disobedience. Now to do this, we're gonna pick this up In Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read all the way through verse 24. If you would this morning, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then both of them, the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed, sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking, as he was moving in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I, I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Then the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. And with painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. The Lord God, Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. He placed them on the east side of the garden of Eden, cherubim, which are a type of angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So today we see the judgment on the serpent and the judgment on Adam and Eve for their disobedience. And we're gonna look at these judgments and how they play a role in our lives today to give us understanding of why the world is the way that it is. But there's one judgment that feeds into all the others. That's at the core of everything that we must highlight to have an understanding to the others. And that judgment was a broken relationship with God. In the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had perfect communion and fellowship with God. But on that day, they lost that connection. They lost access to God as he intended, as it was meant to be. You see, sin separates us from God. Sin separates you and me from God. And you see this echoed through all of the Bible. You see this echoed through the Old Testament. Never do you read about uh, or, or read about them talking about regaining the comforts of Eden where everything was provided. All of the talk of the Old Testament was regaining access to God's presence. Because in the Garden of Eden, on that day, the presence of God was lost in their lives. The perfect relationship was lost when Adam and Eve rejected God. And make no mistakes, that, what, that is what sin is. It is rejecting God. It's not, a, uh, it's not a oopsie, it's not a tiny mistake. Sin is rejecting God as the authority in your life, rejecting his goodness, his providence, his protection, his instruction. Now this may be a simplistic view, but I like in this situation, like a parent who tells a child you're living under my roof, so you're gonna obey my rules. And Adam and Eve chose not to obey the rules of God. So they were gonna be removed from their home, from his home. Now the ironic thing is like most parents, the rules they make for their children are for their good, even though that they don't understand it. And sometimes children must just trust their parents. The same thing here, God made a good rule. They chose not to trust to God. And what happened? The moment they ate it, they felt shame. It caused them to hide from God. And so because of this, God removed them. And because the penalty for sin was death, which is a whole nother sermon on its own, they left the Garden of Eden. God forced them out. They were no longer longer under God's protection and his providence. In a way, they chose to become their own gods. That's what we do when we reject God. When we say, I know better, we are essentially saying, I am my own God. I will decide what is is right and wrong. I will decide what I want to do and don't want to do. That is what it is. You were saying, I am God. And I guess that's fine to do if God does not exist. I think it takes a lot greater faith to make yourself God. It hasn't gone very well for me, at least. I have a long list of mistakes I've made when I thought I knew better than God. But in his divine authority, as he gives us free will, if we choose to be our own God, he'll let us do it. So he allowed them to do it. Now, he doesn't take their roles away from them He says, I've called you to work the land, to reproduce. You're still going to do it. But it's going to become much harder because you've removed yourself from my presence. You no longer trust me. So you lose out on my protection and my provision. You want to be God? Go for it. This affected the man's role. You remember the man's role was assigned to work the land. Well, now that work was just going to get Harder. As a result of the ground being removed from God's favor and protection and blessing, he would still produce what they needed to eat, but it would come through very, very hard labor. Much harder to produce. People who live in New Jersey can feel this one out, as you can't dig more than an inch before finding rock after rock after rock. (sighs) Sorry, PTSD from planting bushes last year. Mankind was also commanded to fulfill to fill the earth. And based on how God designed our bodies, this was going to be woman, the woman's main role. As one journalist likes to say, it is God's superpower that he gave to women to reproduce life. But just like a man's work would get harder, so would the woman's. Now, this is usually the time when we talk about how Uh, giving birth is more painful and I'll have a woman come up after me afterwards and she'll say, when I get to heaven, if Eve is there, I want to punch her in the face. And any woman who's given birth would probably say, amen. (laughs) That's a lot of enthusiasm right there. Now there's something I want you to understand though about this text that you don't see unless you read the Hebrew is the root here, this word for pain It's not just physical, right? But it also relates to mental and psychological anguish, though physical pain can accompany it. So there's a broader feeling to this idea of pain in childbirth, kind of like a a whole soup to nuts approach. Because now death has entered in, and humanity is aware of death. And so this brings an anxiety to the woman. Will she be able to conceive a child? The anxiety that comes through the the birthing process, the whole 10 months of everything a woman goes through. The anxiety concerning the health of the child. The anxiety of whether she and the child will survive. When Maria and I uh, got a, uh, when Maria, rather, she was pregnant with Ella, we went and saw the doctor, and Ella had a tiny little hole in her heart. And uh, you ever heard that doctors don't have bedside manners? This very straightforward and informative doctor literally told us every possible thing that this hole in the heart could mean. It was like, you know, have you ever watched a commercial for a drunk company and they tell you all the great things and at the end, they list everything that can happen. You know, paralysis, death, possession by the Prince of Darkness. Like, it was the same thing. Everything. So Maria and I walked out shell-shocked. And that says a lot for Maria because she's a nurse. Now, praise God, Elda came out fine, better than fine. That baby's perfect. But every mother in here you know the deep worry and anxiety that comes from a desire to have and the process of having children. It's because death is in the world. That's why that's there. There's no assurity of God's protection or providence with sin in the world. Now there's another interesting thing that God says to the woman He says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. What does that mean? Well, I don't have time to go into all the Hebrew. (laughs) Somebody made a joke over here who's gonna probably pay for that later. (laughs) Let me know if you need a couch to sleep on. I don't have time to go into all the Hebrew, but there's actually a couple theories on what this means. First, it's that the woman will become dependent upon her husband because her, her desire for a child could not be fulfilled without his cooperation. There's actually a term for this, a sociological term for this. It's called the principle of lesser interest, where if you have a relationship with two people, the one that has the greater need of that relationship is more vulnerable than the one with the lesser need. You see this all throughout life. And it puts that person in a position of dominance. So her needs as a woman and desire to fulfill this call God has placed on her life, puts her in a position, weaker position, in a vulnerable place. One, to help her procreate and two, to provide for her and her child. And we have seen in our society and every society since the beginning of time Many men ruling over women using this to their advantage, to mistreat their wives or to mistreat women. This is one of the reasons we see in the New Testament verses about how men should treat women. They would not have included them if men already knew how to treat women. But because of how easy it is for men in their sinful nature to abuse their position, the Hebrew law in the Old Testament, they actually had laws that recognized the vulnerability of women and required special deference to them, to provide for them. This is why we read in 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor, honor to them as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That last part should scare every husband in this room. Now, the other option is that this idea of ruling over your husband means what it says. The idea that God, as we talked about three weeks ago or four weeks ago, that God created man and woman to perfectly complement each other as one flesh, to be similar yet different that they would fit together. But now because of sin, this relationship between men and women is in dispute with each party trying to rule over each other. We could see this in society. We see this in marriages. As, a, as one of the, the main problems in dealing with a couple, especially when they get first, first get married, and it'll linger on if they don't deal with it, is the spouse's desire to change or to fix their spouse, that they may better bend to the other spouse's will. I mean, working together, and every married couple knows this, working together as a team and valuing valuing each other equally, it does not come naturally. You have to work on it. You have to strive for it. Why? Because of our sin nature. That's why. The New Testament makes it clear Husbands and wives are to love and serve each other as they are filled with the spirit in a mutual submissive, uh, submissiveness, where we talked about this several years ago in Ephesians, where the wives are to to respect their honor, their husbands. And the husbands are to take that honor and respect and use all of it to serve their families as Christ served the church. Now, no matter which view we take of this passage, it reveals the same thing to us, that relationships are broken. They are broken. They are broken in marriages. They are broken in all of society. We have to work to make them whole. It does not come naturally. And do you know why? Once again, the only reasonable explanation I have ever come across is because not only did we lose God's protection and his provision when sin entered the world, we lost our purpose. We lost our identity, our worth, which we found in relationship with God, it's not there now because we've rejected God. We lost all of that. That doesn't mean that our need for purpose and identity has gone away, clearly but it means we don't look to God. We read this in Romans, no one seeks God without him moving upon them. So because we no longer look to God for fulfillment, what do we do? We start looking to others for fulfillment. We compare ourselves against other people and our self-worth is either valued or devalued by how we make that comparison. I mean, look what happened in the garden. God said, like, what happened? What does Adam say? I ate the fruit. No, he doesn't reply to that. He said, the woman did it. The woman right there, she did it. She gave it to me. She gave it to me. Can you believe that, God? She gave it to me. The temptress by the way, just to throw this in, the woman that you gave me, you know, I'm just saying. (laughs) Right? Why did he do that? Why did he banish himself to probably a lifetime on sleeping on the couch? I'm gonna assume because of fear, fear of what the Lord was going to do, because of guilt for being caught in his sin. Because of shame, as which we've already read about. See, Adam, in this moment, he would have felt, I'm assuming based on human nature and understanding of my own sin, he felt lack in that moment. He felt less than because he had disobeyed God. And so what does he do? He says, I'm gonna use Eve to better my situation. Let's take the focus off of me. It was the woman. The woman. Let me blame her. Do we not do this? When we get in trouble, it was somebody else's fault. It's what they did. And using from this moment, somebody else to better our self-image and our situation has been going on ever since. From marriages to all of society. See, in order to have and be confident in our self-image, Without God, we have to feel superior to other people. We have to feel better then. When that feeling of lack comes in, oh man, I'm glad I'm not like them. Glad I'm not like them. They're here, I'm here. We've all said this. So because of this need, we will disadvantage other people so we can feel good about ourselves. We will justify ourselves so that we can have the significance and security that we want. It happens in our schools. What do you think bullying comes from? The need and desire to be seen as something more than we think we are. It happens in our families Brothers and sisters, do they naturally hug and build each other up and compliment each other? Hey sis, you look tired, let me give you a foot rub. Let me clean your room for you. No, we pick fights with one another, brothers and sisters do. We blame one another. Why do you do that? Because your self-worth is not in God. You have to use your brother or sister to build up your own ego. That's why you do it. That's why we did it when we're young. That's why children will continue to do it. Because we need other people to make us feel better about ourselves. That's what happens when you lose your purpose in God. We see it in our politics. What have our politics become? It's all about making somebody else look bad so that we can look better. It happens in every area of humanity, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, everywhere. It's in our nature. C.S. Lewis, he wrote this little fictional piece called Screwtape Proposes a Toast. And in uh, Screwtape, he's this senior devil. And, and he's basically, when well, he's at this dinner for these junior devils who are getting ready to go out there and tempt the human race and and make life horrible. And so Screwtape, what he does is he suggests this particular method for making people's lives horrible, for making the world a horrible place. And what he suggests is that there's a particular feeling that people have. And what you want to do as a demon to really get at people is you want to turn the gas up on that feeling. Screwtape says, the feeling I'm talking about is that feeling which prompts a person to say, I am as good as you. That's the essence of sin. That's the essence of hell, how hell operates. That's what made the devil the devil. I am as good as you. When Satan started saying this about God, it was all downhill from there for the universe. That's the impulse we have in us. That when we feel better than other people or that they agree with us or they support us, it builds up our ego. That's how we know we're okay. It's really at the root of everything in this world. The root of all broken relationships in their world come down to this. You see, because our relationship with God is messed up, our relationship with each other is messed up and this is so important for us to understand because it has implications on how we see the world it changes everything you know the world we experience it has a lot of beauty but it has a lot of ugliness but we get caught up in the wrong kind of ugliness. Like you know, there's this big push for you know by some for global warming, and I talked about this a few weeks ago. That we should be good steward of what God gave us. But when you understand the real problem is sin, you realize your chief concern is not uh, something like global warming. You realize your chief concern is sin, because that is where all our time and energy needs to be focused, because that's at the root of what's wrong with the world. We under, that's when we start to understand that the only thing that should be priority in our life is the gospel, nothing else. It changes how we see one another. Too often we, we judge people for their actions alone without thinking about their deep need for Jesus that's driving it. Take, for example, President Putin. He's a man that we would see on the web and when we talk about it, we'd call it evil. But do we ever consider what's behind the evil? I mean, a man who leads an army from what, from what reports would say bombs innocent civilians. Why would he do that? What is he doing? Well, in the end, he's using the Ukrainian people to prop himself up. A defeat in his mind would make him greater. And he needs to feel Greater because he doesn't find his purpose in God. So he has to find it from somewhere. And anytime we have great power, we'll use whatever power we have to fulfill that. I saw one interview where he gave a speech how he's doing this because he feels a threat from NATO. You know, and if I were him, I guess I could see that, not to justify his actions in any way. But once again, if that is driving his actions, what's driving that? Fear. Fear of losing power, fear of losing influence, fear of being defeated. Once again, because he doesn't find his security and purpose in God. So it must be in this power. So he's gonna use other people to provide him with that security. He's gonna take Ukraine and he wants to make it a buffer zone for his power. Some reports saying Russia's having a tough time. If those are true, they say, you know, Putin's in a tough place, he'll never pull out. Why? Because of the shame that he would experience the shame of defeat. So he's going to keep pressing once again because his identity is in Christ. And when your identity is not in Christ and that's not your purpose, you can't lose. You can't afford to lose because it will crush you. So you push and push because your ego can't handle it otherwise. It also changes understanding this, how we see ourselves. Because it'd be easy for us to, to look at President Putin and think, I'm better than that. But if we do that, if we say, I'm better than President Putin, we're just doing the same thing he's doing. We're using somebody else to prop up our ego. The truth is, understanding sin and the universality of sin brings humility. Humility. To know that given the right situation and the right amount of wrong choices and the right amount of power, we would be in the same place doing the same thing. The same evil that is in him is in us. Most of us, we just don't take over another country because we don't have the power to do so. But we'll destroy other things. We'll destroy our families because of our ego. We'll destroy our churches, our workplaces, all for the same underlying reason that our purpose is not in God. We must understand that every part of us, our mind, our will, our our emotions have been corrupted by sin. It affects everything that we do, that we think, and that we are. And when we realize this about ourselves, we stop seeing other people as enemies alone, but we see people who desperately need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Putin needs Jesus. You and I need Jesus. And also understanding this realizes this, that when we look in the mirror, we see that same need, the same hopelessness, that same lost identity, looking for value, looking for purpose, all because of sin. Now, for some, they get to this place and they're devastated by it because they have nowhere to turn. Others, they get to this place and they're filled with joy. What is the difference? Those who look to Christ and those who do not. I didn't spend much time on this and I'm not going to today, but the one part I didn't touch on was the curse on the snake. Now, there's a couple things of what this could mean One, it's a general reference to snakes and human and how they will be at odds with each other, which is pretty true, except for a few of you unique individuals who like to have snakes in your house. Some also see as a reference to good versus evil in the world. Some also see it as the very first announcement of the good news of Jesus Christ that the he that refers to the he refers to Christ in this verse now personally i don't really think there's enough evidence one way or another but in the end it doesn't matter we don't need a passage here in genesis 3 to understand what paul says in romans 5 and that's this for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience that many will be made righteous in other words through Adam, we lost the presence of God. Through Jesus, we find the presence of God. That's why we sing, he, he, he who chose a criminal, criminal's end, paid with blood to settle our debt, buried death as he rose to life, we need to behold him. Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah, the lamb, the roaring lion, oh, we must be still and behold him. The thing i love about this as this chapter ends it says that god he went and he put garments of skin on adam and eve of animal skin and he clothed them this is a beautiful thing about god that even though adam and eve were faithless to him he was always been faithful to them caring for them even in their sin and is this not what jesus did for us he came to us as God came to them. And as we read in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, that he clothes his people with salvation. That whoever put their faith in Christ, as we read in Revelation 2, 7, they're returned back and they are granted the right to eat from the tree of the fruit of life. The tree of fruit of life, you know what I'm saying? And so my whole prayer for today in this message is that we will have an understanding of why the world is the way that it is. We won't get caught up in the daily things on the surface. We'll understand the battle that's going on behind it, and that we will understand the sin that is behind this world, and driving all the pain and the hurt that we see is also what's driving us, and will bring us to a desperate need to stop being our own God And look to the one true God. That our relationship with him would be restored. And thus we watch our relationships with others be restored.